Hi there, you're listening to What Are You Going To Do With That? In this podcast of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa, you'll learn about the struggles and successes of young researchers. It might inspire you to pursue an academic career, or if you're already on that track, it can provide you with some tips and the feeling that you're not alone. My name is Dani, I'm a PhD candidate, and today I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Talita de Souza Diaz. Talita got her undergraduate studies in law at the Federal University of Pernambuco in Brazil. She then worked as a law clerk in criminal law for a while. How long did you do that for? Um, almost two years. Oh almost two years of clerking, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into that a bit more later. In 2015, you then decided to go back to school and you obtained a Magister Juris degree from Oxford with distinction. And not only that, you were also awarded the Clifford Chance Prize for Best Overall Performance in the MJUR and the Law Faculty Prize for Best Exam Paper in International Law and Armed Conflict, the Principal's Prize and Archibald Jackson Prize for Academic Excellence. I hope I didn't forget anything. Yeah. No, no, you got it right. Great. Of course, this success meant that you had to continue. So you pursued with a PhD in public international law, also at Oxford. At the same time, you worked for Judge Olga Herrera Carbuccia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Great. At the, yeah, yeah, you're right. At the International Crime Court. Criminal Court, sorry. Under the sponsorship of the Oxford Global Justice Internship Program and the Planet Hood Foundation, that was. And you also worked as a case reporter for the Oxford Reports on International Law and as an assistant for not just one, but two professors. And in addition to that, you co-convened the Oxford Public International Law Discussion Group. Currently, you're a postdoctoral research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, and you're also a lecturer in criminal law and a seminar leader in law and public policy. Recently, you've been appointed fellow of the Higher Education Academy. And your research interests include due diligence in cyberspace and atrocity prevention in the digital age. You're particularly interested in identifying state obligations to prevent, hold, and redress transboundary cyber harms, as well as the applicable standards of due diligence under international law. So, she's also part of the transatlantic Atrocity Prevention Network, and as part of this network, her research looks at states' duties to prevent aggression under international law. Some of your research has already been published in the Leiden Journal of International Law, the Journal of International Criminal Justice, the International Criminal Law Review, and more. Wow, I'm almost out of breath. Yeah, oh my god, it's it's a very long bio, sorry about that. <laughs> no worries, don't be sorry about it, I'd be proud of it if I were you. But to be honest, in the beginning I thought that maybe you're a vampire and not in need of any sleep with all that you're doing at the same time. Oh no, <laughs> no, no, I sleep quite well. That's a good thing, great. <laughs> so let's start with a toast on your accomplishments. I've got my amaretto here ready on this side of the camera. <laughs> so I'm going to pour myself some. What are you having? I am going for a traditional British drink. Okay. Tea. 
because it's just uh, five in the afternoon here uh, and I have to go back to work after we finish the podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> These are busy times for me. But yeah, but I really like tea, so it works well. So you've integrated very well into British society, I hear. I have, I have, which is very, very surprising because I am one thing but conservative. I'm not very, very traditional, like like Oxford, like Britain. So I thought that I wasn't going to fit in, but eventually it worked out pretty well. All right, I'll cheer to that. Cheers. How do you Cheers. Say, how do you say that in Portuguese? Uh, Saudi. All right. Yeah, it just means health. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Let's kick off with some short questions then. Number one, how do you start your day? So normally I have a very lazy start uh, every day because uh, that's what researchers do, I guess. That's why I chose <laughs> to be a researcher or an academic more generally. So I wake up late whenever I want. So sometimes it's like 8, 30, sometimes 9, sometimes a bit earlier, like 7, 30. Uh, obviously, I have a big um, cup of coffee. Um, so that's the first thing that I have when I start my day. And I immediately go to check my emails to my computer. So I check my emails. And then sometimes if I'm inspired, I write something. So I immediately go to work. I get my coffee and I just sit down and work slowly. And then I kind of like speed up a bit once I get more energy. And then after a few hours of work, usually like until like I have a sacred uh, sort of like physical exercise time every day. So every every day at 11, 11.30, I stop religiously. And then I do some sort of a physical exercise. It could be, so now I've got to do something outdoors because all of the gyms are closed. So I, I used to go to the gym or to yoga, but now I go for a walk or a run or a cycle outdoors usually at a park here in Oxford, but that's my sacred sort of like exercise or my sort of like my free time of the day as uh, the, the break that I need from intense work throughout the morning. And then uh, I come back home. So I, I usually work from home. So I like that. So the lockdown hasn't really affected my, my work uh, schedule. Sounds very familiar, I have to say. Yeah. As long as you keep a routine, they say that that's supposed to be very healthy, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the important thing is that I have, I, I need a break. Every every morning I need a break to do something active, to forget about everything that I've been doing, because otherwise I go crazy. Has it worked today? Yes. Oh, actually not exactly as planned, because it was raining a lot today uh so i couldn't go outdoors um so my husband and i we usually go together but unfortunately it wasn't possible so i did some, but i did some yoga indoors so i downloaded one of those like yoga apps <laughs> it also brings me to my next question which is what app could you not live without ah what app could i not live without okay that's a good one I would probably say I'm not a social media person. So although I have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and all that kind of stuff, I'm not like I could live without those things. But the one thing that I don't think I could live without is my outlook 
app for checking emails. And also my my uh, my my watch app, which also receives notifications from the same sort of app, so that I couldn't live without because I'm constantly constantly monitoring my emails and I'm very diligent about them. So this is the thing. This is the one app that I couldn't live without, and that's the reason why I got a, a mobile phone in the first place. Because I hate people calling me, for example, or WhatsApping. I usually keep my phone always on a silent mode. But the reason why I've got my phone is to check my email. Okay, so you're on top of everything all the time. I am on top. I am on top of everything. I like to be on top of everything. Would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on your life? Uh, I think I would prefer to go forward. Because I'm very, very anxious. I'm constantly speculating things and thinking about the future. So I would, especially now, because we want to, you know, get through this. But I'm constantly, constantly planning ahead, thinking about the future. So I probably, I probably prefer to skip some parts and, you know, just just go ahead and do do things before anyone else or before I I I should do them. So I'm a bit. I'm a bit like ahead of things, <laughs> too much ahead of things sometimes. All right. Well, if you had to be on a reality TV show, which one would you choose? Would it be something like Big Brother or Master Chef or something else? Uh, I, I love reality shows. Um, I would probably say I like Master Chef, but that's not my favorite um, cooking. I love cooking, and I love cooking uh, shows as well. But I don't think that this is my favorite one. I do love RuPaul, so that's something very embarrassing because I love drag, and I fantasize about uh, being a drag. Although because I'm a woman, I can't officially be a drag, and I would be banned from RuPaul <laughs> probably. But I, I would, I would love to just do a drag show like once in my life. Okay, well, who knows? What the future brings. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay. Assuming that everyone has a bucket list, what have you already striped off of yours? Okay. Uh, that's a good one. Bucket list. Uh, what I have already striped off mine, so things that I've already done that were on my bucket list. Uh, probably get a PhD. Very good. So that's a boring thing. But let me see. Not sure. Oh, dining at a Michelin star restaurant. I've done that. Uh, I've dined at a two-star Michelin, uh, a two-star um, restaurant once. And my next goal is to dine at a three. All right. But that's too expensive for the moment. And rent a proper house. So I've always lived in student accommodation. So now I need to, you know, move on with my life and become a grown-up. And although I've married, I've never lived in, like, private accommodation because it's always been cheaper to live at student accommodation. Uh, and I've recently signed my first tenancy agreement. And this has been a very important milestone in my life because it's sort of like the watershed movement with a moment between being a student and being like a proper like I don't know if grown up is the right word but a proper I don't know uh, lecture fellow I don't know yeah a proper professional or adult yeah I think it's very important to have a bucket list so that we keep being motivated about what we still want to do yeah but I also think it's important to remember what we have already done and have accomplished that we wanted to do 
So thanks for sharing. Before we move to talk about Talita's very interesting journey, I'd like to invite you to visit our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram when you simply search for what are you going to do with that? Or through the account at what's to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. You can follow us there to see what we actually look like and for additional information about our guests and their research and more fun stuff. Okay, let's move on to the episode. I think that one one really notices when we're listening to your path going from the BA into the postdoc um, is especially the break between the MA and the BA, right? Or the other way around, between the BA and the MA. Can you tell me what you did in between and what made you decide to continue the MA abroad and why Oxford of all places? So as as you mentioned in the beginning, I was a clerk right after. So right after I finished my undergrad, I started clerking for a couple of years almost. And I've always been passionate about international law, international criminal law from the beginning. So this is the very reason why I chose to do law in the first place. But what happened is back in Brazil, international law wasn't a very valued area of law or profession. So I would be jobless, basically, if I had chosen that path. So this is why I started clerking in criminal law. And at some point in my life, I kind of like uh, got disenchanted with academia because I had applied for a master's program in my home university. And because they weren't taking anyone doing international law or international criminal law, I got a rejection. And that was a big like kind of like a, I don't know, hit. like I, I felt like I was a hit on in my face. And it was a big blow and I kind of like got disenchanted with academia, with the dream of, you know, pursuing international, an international law career. And I just like move on to, you know, just boring stuff. And then if it weren't for my husband and his kind of like incentive and his own idea to do uh, a PhD abroad, he's a computer scientist, so he's not a lawyer. So he is the one who got, who had the plan to come to Oxford because he knew that they had, uh, I don't know, like a world-renowned center in the area of his um, research. And he was the one who actually forced me to apply to Oxford because I never thought, first of all, I, I didn't want to do a master's and I didn't want to do it in Oxford. And he was like, but you have to do it. That's what you want. Why don't you apply? And then at that point, I thought, well, actually, it's not a bad idea to do a master's. Um, I don't want to just be like the wife <laughs> and follow him. So then sort of like this idea of doing a master's grew. And I kind of like reconnected to the idea of pursuing a career in international law. It grew back in me. And um, eventually I, I applied. I applied like to 15 universities at the time, I remember, just to be able to come and do something whilst he was doing his PhD here. I wasn't going to apply to Oxford, to be honest, because I never thought I was going to get in. Uh, and it was it was my husband who actually, as I said, he practically forced me to do that. And at some point I was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to apply. Uh, his persistence uh, won. And then and then I got in and one thing led to another. So I did so as a I was accepted to the MGR, the masters here in law, and it was very overwhelming, very, very different 
from what I was used to because it was a different country. Uh, the first time I was doing anything in English, like a proper course, an official course in England, in English and in England, in an English-speaking country. And uh, so it was very overwhelming. The methodology was completely different. I was used to a very, very different style. And But I loved it. It was so challenging. And I just knew that this is this was what I wanted to do. So this is what happened uh, between the undergrad and the master. Was it difficult for you to make this decision of being in a comfortable job with a paycheck, right? Yeah. Um, being scared maybe or at least bumped out by academia for being the client the first time? to then decide, okay, now I'm going to a different country and I'm going to study there and it's probably going to cost me a lot more money than what I'd be able to yeah. make. Yeah, it did cost me a lot of money because I didn't get a scholarship. <laughs> and it's very, it was still very expensive. So it was a big decision because, as you said, I had a stable job and in Brazil, you know, uh, public services of, is the sort of like the favorite kind of job these days because it provides you with job security and it's also very well paid. And I had a good salary, so I was young. I was like at the time 23, 24 years old with a good salary, good paycheck. Imagine planning to get married and um, all of a sudden there's this opportunity to leave it all behind and, and do what I've always dreamt about. So it was it was difficult and I, I I wasn't sure for a long time that this was the right thing to do, which is why I think that like my husband's support and incentive were instrumental in all of this and if it weren't for his incentive I would have never done it but I just decided that it was worth a try and I literally used most of my savings to pay for this M for the M tour and in the end I think it paid off <laughs> it was a good investment it was an investment in by myself and myself which paid off looking at all your achievements I think you can say that Legitly. I think it paid off. I mean, even even regardless, I think the whole experience was was incredible. And I wouldn't have done it like any different. All right. You already mentioned that it was hard to study in a different language. And I can relate to that. Um, I moved myself between yeah. countries as well. English is not my native tongue. So did you have to take any language courses or did you try to step up your game by yourself? So I didn't have to take any uh, courses when I when I started the master's because I already had a, a good level of proficiency. Although I had never studied a degree in English, I, I, I started to learn English from a very, very young age. And I'm very, very lucky for that uh, because that was a big, that made a huge difference in my career and in my life. It opened several doors. So I remember, so this is, the story that my mother tells that when I was little, I think maybe six years old, and I would I would keep asking her, Mom, please, can you can you please let me study English? Because I don't know, I think maybe I'd see movies and things in English and that got, got me curious. And then when I was seven years old, I joined an English school and I would go two, three times a week, um, and I loved it, and I would study at home. Everything that I do, I do it in English. I'd listen to you know, music in English, TV shows without subtitles. So this is why I got to a very good level before I came here, even though I had never like done a degree. And you were also not alone, because you came together with your husband? Yeah, yeah. But did you manage to build a group of friends or a support system in England? Yeah, so that's that's 
kind of funny because that's that's a very rare thing to happen that like a cup as a couple you come you're both accepted at the same time and then you you both get to study so this was something that was very unique and very rare to find and people were very very curious about this so I think that that also gained us some friends because they were like oh you're a couple and you're in Oxford so um and but there were several couples so most of our friends uh were either couples uh, that lived around us or because we used to live in college accommodation so when we came here so uh, so going a step back we got married two weeks before we came so we got we had the wedding we had a very short honeymoon and as I said I, we never had a house because we were coming to the UK and there was no point in you know just renting or buying a house so we just came straight to Oxford and our first accommodation was in college. And I don't know if you're familiar with the college system in England. It's a bit odd because um, each college is not just meant to be like an academic community. It's also meant to be a whole support system. And so they do all sorts of, uh, they provide all sorts of things like extracurricular activities like sports, accommodation, food. And also you get to meet a lot of people who also live or go to college for several things and so we met lots of good friends in college neighbors uh, other couples and also I got to meet wonderful people in my own program during the masters people like friends that I still have to this day uh, not many because I don't think that quantity is important I think that quality is more important but I did manage to to make some some very very good friends great and so did my husband also good to know yeah all right so now you're at this stage close to the end of your MA where you build yourself a support group of friends more quality than quantity wise and you've run out of money and then the Brexit happens <laughs> oh god yeah how was that so so Brexit happened when I was already doing my my PhD I think so it was it was very tough to be able to do the PhD. I won't I won't lie because um, so as I said before, I spent most of my savings on the masters. I had no money left, as you put it rightly, and uh, we were basically living from my husband's scholarship because he had one from the Brazilian government, and I had some money left, but not much. And what happened is the first time I applied. And at the time, the currency, our currency was very, very low. So to make things worse, so it was like one to six, something like that. So so one, one pound was equivalent to like six Brazilian rice. So it was a, a lot of money. And, and basically what happened, so the first time I applied for the PhDs, which here we call DFO, Doctor of Philosophy, I was still doing my MGER because uh, you have that option. You can apply whilst you're still a student and you have like a fast track application system and then I applied and I was rejected so basically I didn't have any grades so it was very early on which I think doesn't work very well because they like the committee the selection committee they don't get to know you they don't get to know if you're going to do well or not and what happens sometimes is that some people for some people they offer a, uh, a spot and obviously they attach some conditions to your offer and some people never fulfill those conditions and then they have to work it out whether they will take the person or not and then other people like in my case do really well 
but they were rejected. So what happened to me was I was rejected to another big blow and I was devastated for I think at least two weeks. I was, I would cry every day because this was like, well, you know, once you start something, you know, you left your entire career, your entire life behind. And then, you know, you're into, you're into something and you're excited. And I was really excited to, to, to continue. And then it was like, all of my dreams were all of a sudden like crushed because of this stupid system that they had here. How did you get past that? Because this was the second time. Ah, uh, it was tough. I basically, so I am a, a weird person in the sense that defeat motivates me to to do better, I think. So I think that I think that like some people have this, like the the more you suffer, the stronger you get. So I'm like that. I'm very resilient. So I go down to the bottom. I, I hit rock bottom. But when I come up, when I rise, I rise stronger. So this is like a phoenix. So this is why I have a phoenix tattoo in the back. Okay. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I'm like that. So and then I, for me, what, what motivated me was like, well, you've got to show them, right? You've got to show them what you've what you're worth you, you got to show them what you have and so this like motivated me and since I didn't have any conditions I kind of like did the exams like with a clear mind without any pressure the only pressure coming from myself and that's all that I needed at the time so I guess that's that's also something that helped me like all I, I had to prove something to myself before anyone else and I think that this really really helped and then um what happened is because I was uh, rejected uh, for my first application, then I had a gap year between my master's and my PhD. So this is why I went to the ICC, to the International Criminal Court for an internship. And in the end, it worked really well because uh, had I not been rejected, I wouldn't have made the decision to go to the ICC and, and work there. So in the end, it was good. So, you know, like sometimes things don't happen. Like they say a door closes, but a window opens. And so this is, uh, yeah, so I, I did six months of internship there. And when I, uh, I applied again for the PhD and I got in, but then there's another complication with funding, which you, you might want, I'm, you might want to save it for a different question because I didn't have got, I didn't get full scholarship for my Oxford uh, offer. I got it for another university, and then I almost didn't come to, to Oxford for the PhD. All right, so let's spread the ups and downs a little bit and talk about finances when we get there a bit later. Yeah. <laughs> so what topic did you do your PhD on? Like, what did you come back to after the ICC? Uh, well, it's only natural that I do a PhD in international criminal law, because <laughs> that, that was my passion. That's always been my passion. Uh, and uh, so I did a, my PhD also in international um, criminal law. So I did my thesis, my master's thesis in international criminal law too. And the PhD was sort of like it built on one of the tutorial discussions that I had during my master's. So here in Oxford, with the tutorial system, what you do is most of your learning comes from very uh, intense discussions that you have with tutors either in seminars or in tutorials and in this tutorial we had a very very interesting discussion about the principle of legality or non-retroactivity and some of the dilemmas that um, exist around this principle in the context of the international criminal court 
And this, this problem of legality puzzled me for a long, long time. Uh, I couldn't get through this. So that's how the idea to do the PhD on the principle of legality and in international criminal law arose very, very uh, briefly. And yeah, if I can summarize how it went, it was like this. All right. I also know that during the PhD, you've published quite some articles. I found one that the Board of Editors of the Journal of International Criminal Justice awarded you with a prize in 2018 for your essay called The Retroactive Application of the Rome Statute in the Cases of Security Council Referrals and Ad Hoc Declarations, an appraisal of the existing solutions to an under-discussed problem. So that's a very short title. Yeah, very concise. <laughs> that's all right. I was wondering how many publications you managed to push through during the PhD, and if you found it difficult to publish. And do you have any tips for others to do the same, or would you not recommend it? I would definitely recommend. So the reason why I started to publish. So basically, I had my my MJR dissertation which I had put so much work into. And so the first publication came from that, came from my work before I started the PhD, my work on the uh, on the MJUR dissertation, trying to adapt it and turn it into an article. And in the end, I managed to publish and the article uh, was cited last year at the ICC. So I'm glad that I did that. Great. So I definitely recommend publishing because you never know where your research is going to end up, how it's going to contribute to the real world. And then during the PhD, the reason why I started publishing a lot is because, so my supervisor, he's amazing, but he was very busy during many, many periods of my PhD. So when we would meet, it was very, very helpful. He'd give me like excellent feedback, like the best feedback possible. But sometimes, because he was away traveling, it was hard to get hold of him. So the way that I found to get feedback when he couldn't do that was to publish, like to submit my articles for publication, not necessarily expecting that it would be published, but simply to get feedback, just to see if I was, you know, on the right track. And then surprisingly, this paper that I uh, that I got the prize for on the retroactive application of the Rome Statute. So this was the core topic of my thesis at the beginning. And this was uh, originally, it is still <laughs> one chapter, of my thesis, the very first chapter that I wrote, uh, or maybe the second, but one of the first chapters that I wrote, and I really needed to know if I was going in the right direction. And so I decided to try and publish it. And in the end, um, well, it got very good feedback, and eventually got the prize. So this is how I managed to publish because uh, every every time I'd have an idea, every time I wanted to, um, you know, just put it out there, uh, share my work, I just submit it for publication. This is a very interesting angle. I haven't thought about that myself. Maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, you should. You should. It's very, very helpful. Did you also write any op-eds or essays during the PhD? Not necessarily in journal publications, but um, things that are more accessible to the broader public? Yes. So I did quite a few policy briefs or reports um, together with my supervisor on different, like more practical topics. So we did together one policy brief on prosecutorial discretion, which eventually, which was meant to serve sort of like as an interpretive guide of the Rome statutes provisions on that topic. And 
eventually this this work that we did together was cited by the ICC uh, in a case. So we were very pleased that we that our work had impact beyond academia. And um, and I've also done policy brief together with him for uh, the African African Institute of Security Studies. So this is the uh, NGO. And the policy brief that we did was on the on cooperation between the Security Council and the International Criminal Court. Uh, so it was meant to be also a guide for states and security members of the Security Council, Security Council itself, and the court on this on how to improve this cooperation. And it was presented in the Assembly of States Parties uh, meeting, general meeting in December two thousand and. Uh, 18 in in New York. So for the so the states parties to the ICC, those they meet every year in this event, and the 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 report, the policy brief that we did was presented there. So again, some impact beyond academia, and very exciting for you. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. <laughs> All right. So what do you think is the added value of op-eds and essays? Um, I think it's like a way to do some sort of like down-to-earth uh, work rather than just theoretical writing. I think we all need to reach out to real people and the real world. And I think that what is uh, interesting about more informal reports and essays is the accessibility of language, which is one thing that usually academic publications don't have. So I think that this is the most important added value of those publications because they demystify the law to to real people. And I think that, you know, if, if you want your work and if you want the law in general to have an impact, you have to write something other than just um, academic articles and um, journals. Is this something that you will also recommend your students? Because you've also taught a lot, haven't you? I did, yeah. Initially, because I needed I needed the money, <laughs> but but I, I enjoy teaching. If it's not too overwhelming, it's very gratifying. What I'd recommend my students basically was to get involved in research from a very very young age, even if they were undergrads, for example. So this is something that I did myself when I was an undergrad to do research, regardless of whether it yields. Uh, an academic publication or a more practical report. This was always my my advice because this is the way in which you sort of like develop a research mentality and also a critical mentality and mindset into students. And this is something that is really, really important. For example, in countries where like Brazil and France, where law school is very, very like ex-cathedra, it's like you don't get to question what your professors tell you. You just write it down and just reproduce whatever it is that you've written down in your exams. And there's no room for questioning. So this is all this sort of like this critical thinking research mindset is something that I've always tried to still in myself as a student and in my students as a, as a teacher. All right. Sounds like a good tip. I'll also take it into consideration, even though I'm not that early on. <laughs> in the studies anymore. All right, so you've been teaching also to help you get that uh, funding that you needed, right? Yeah. Was that enough? No. So basically, uh, as I was telling you earlier, what happened is I didn't get a full scholarship. The the Everything in Oxford is expensive, and not least because I'm an overseas student. So rather than, 
you know, paying seven grand, seven thousand pounds a year, I had to pay oh, twenty two a year, twenty two thousand wow. pounds a year. And obviously, I didn't have. I, I well, I was working, and I had spent all of my money on the mosque, so I didn't have money to pay for the for the for the default. And the law faculty here gave me um, at the time it was their like highest the highest scholarship that they could possibly give, which covered ten thousand pounds for an European student. Any year student that would be fine because that would cover all tuition fees, and that would leave some money for living costs and then you know you get to teach a little bit and then uh, it works well but then for me it only covered half of the half of the tuition fees so basically and then I got an offer from UCL University College London and there they they uh, offered me like a full scholarship so I was like torn between oh do I stay in Oxford and having to you know figure it out how I'm going to pay or do I go to UCL and you know get a full scholarship and then I had the idea of approaching the Planet Hood Foundation which was the foundation that sponsored my internship in The Hague in the ICC and I had met one of their directors Don Ferens and they support several different academic projects here in Oxford all relating to international law and transitional justice. And I literally, like, I, I sent him an email saying, like, just recounting all of my trajectory, all of my struggles, and, and just, like, very, very honestly telling, sincerely just telling him, look, I'm, I need, I don't have the money. I would really love to do a PhD. I, I think I can make a significant contribution, not only to um, academia, but also real, to the real world. But I don't have the money and I would really, really uh, love this opportunity. And then like a week after, he came to Oxford and we met. We had a conversation. And then like a couple of days after, he said, well, I'll pay the rest of the money that you need for your tuition fee. So obviously, that only covered my tuition fee. So I decided to turn down the UCL scholarship, which also covered living fees, by the way, <laughs> living costs. And so here I was. Well, I've, I had my tuition covered then I had to find a way to pay for my uh, living costs without depending solely on my husband's scholarship and this is how I started to teach and yes to complement our budget all right so we've talked about some of the bumps on the road that you've encountered on your way but tell me a little bit about your achievements and everything that went well what do you say are your biggest achievements so far Oh, my biggest achievement so far, apart from getting this uh, scholarship, which was something completely like unexpected. Yeah, an, an example of how informal things can be and how a conversation can change everything. So I think apart from that, um, biggest achievement, uh, that's a good question. What about the postdoc, for example, that you're doing right now? The postdoc, yeah, the postdoc was, uh, well, it was a, well, this was a good achievement, but it wasn't the greatest achievement. So I'm, the postdoc, the way I got it is basically because my supervisor needed someone to work on a project and, well, he thought I'd be good for it. So it wasn't like something that I am, that I'd say it's a big achievement. It is a good achievement. It's only one year, but I got interviewed last Friday for, um, junior research fellowship at Jesus College 
um, here in Oxford. So this is a three-year postdoc sponsored by the Shaw Foundation. It's a very good postdoc. And they offered me the position. So this is all very new. So you got yourself another three years in Oxford. Yes, yes. That's very, very bad for me. <laughs> Congratulations, though. Thank you. So, yeah, so this is the, yeah, another cheers. So basically, so I'll start this one in March 2021. And uh, for this project, I'm going to, um, for the postdoc, I'll be doing a project on online hate speech. So this is the, the topic of my project, moving away a little bit from international criminal law as a whole uh, and getting closer to international human rights law. Very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is the project and I'll be looking at like the situation in Myanmar with the Rohingya, hate speech in the context of uh, terrorism, especially uh, the use of uh, ISIL, Islamic State of uh, social media, and also hate speech in the United States. And more recently, hate speech related to COVID-19. So the, the use of uh, xenophobic rhetoric in relation to that. A lot of social media. Sounds like you're going to have to uh, step up your game on the yes, apps. I, I have to. Yeah, yeah. It's not that I don't have them. It's just that I'm not a big fan, especially because of those things. It's nicer to spy on other people with them than to use it yourself, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be a passive user. Okay, so you got yourself another three years for a new postdoc on hate speech in Oxford, but your family is back in Brazil. Are you ever thinking about what's going to happen on the longer run? So a long time ago, I've decided that I don't want to go back to Brazil. Uh, it's not that I don't like it. I have a difficult relationship with the country, especially now with the with this new president. I'm not very happy about it. But I have I had a very, very different life which I didn't necessarily enjoy. And I think that my life here is much, much better. Uh, for my parents, it's very, very hard because I'm an only child. And they used to have a dog. Well, we used to have a dog, but she she lived 16 years old and she died. So that, that was their other kid. But now they're on their own. So I feel, I feel obviously sad and I'm, I worry about them. Uh, but they've always been very, very encouraging. They come visit me often. I go visit them, of, not often, but whenever I can, I go. But they come very often. So um, this is the way that we, we and we Skype regularly. Uh, and now this is what you've got to do, right? You can't see people physically. So you You Skype and we've been doing this for years, but it's tough. But I don't, I don't, I don't want to go back because I, I really like the simplicity of my life here. In, in Brazil, it was very, very difficult, very complicated to get a decent life because everything's expensive. It's you either to you're either poor or you're very rich, and to get a decent like middle class life standard you've got to you've got to earn a lot of money and uh, in order to do that you have to work a lot if you're in the private sector or you have to basically i don't want to say that word but um, you have to be a good politician you have to please a lot of people in the public sector uh, in order to get where you want to get if you know what i mean so uh, it wasn't it wasn't professionally and personally it wasn't very fulfilling so I like the simplicity the fact that here I just uh, 
yeah, I just uh, do my work. I wake up whenever I want. I do whatever I want. And I like that kind of freedom. I don't need a car. I don't need like a big apartment. I don't need anything. So I'm, I'm very, very happy where I am. That's good to hear that you're happy where you are. Yeah, I don't need what I used to have. It was, it was a very complicated life. Plus the insecurity. So probably not going back to Brazil anytime soon. And a new postdoc in the pocket. But then the last question always is, what are you going to do with that? I don't know. Uh, hopefully, um, I'll get like a professorship afterwards. That's the dream. The dream is staying in the academics. Yes, of course. My my dream is to, to stay. I've, I've gone a long way and um, now I'm almost there. There's only... Uh, maybe like a few years left and um, yeah I, I really love academia really really love it I, I don't necessarily want to exclude practice from my professional life but I primarily want to to be in academia and maybe like do some consultancy on the side but I really want to stay in academia okay to close the circle I'd like to ask you another few short questions to end with. Okay. So the first short question is, what was the most important conference that you've been to? I don't like conferences a lot. <laughs> is this a good answer? <laughs> yeah, that works. You don't like going to them. No, I prefer workshops. Does that count? Yes, it does. Because they're like smaller. So recently we went to... Um, I went with my team to a conference uh, workshop in Helsinki on um, the application of international to cyberspace. And it was very, very helpful. Helsinki? Yeah. Nice. Okay, second question. <laughs> Which scholarship was the hardest to get? I've only had one, right, for <laughs> my default. Um, well, I had two for the default, one that I had to go after. That one was the hardest one. But it did work out. Yeah. What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Oh, this is a hard one. I was very pleased when I saw my name for the first time in, in an ICC judgment um, and official document. So I think that to me that was the, the most gratifying sort of like contribution because that's concrete proof that my work made uh, an impact somewhere. Into the real world. Yeah, into the into real world. <laughs> that's what you mentioned before you said there's the real world and academics yeah and it it's is a bubble. bubble yeah okay who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished ah uh, this one is easy my supervisor so he is the most brilliant helpful and inspiring uh, academic i've ever met like he in a split second he comes up with like a thousand different ways to think about an issue. So I have no doubt that for me, he is the, the role model, the male muse. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Oh, okay. I love, this is a very dirty secret. secret. I love singing, but I sing really badly. <laughs> So I like it because, uh, well, first of all, singing, you know, is good for the soul. But also seeing that I sing badly also makes me laugh. So this is one way to unwind. 
But more like normally, what I do after work is I watch movies. I love cinema. Love it. Love it. Love cinema. I'm um, I'm an addict, and this is my way of relaxing. You know, just uh, delving into a new world. Hopefully, a better one on the screen. Great. I loved talking to you and listening to your stories. <laughs> And I also really liked your enthusiasm, so I'll cheer to that one more time. Do you have any tea left? Cheer. I do, I have a little bit. And I also want to thank our listeners again for coming back for this episode. And keep coming back to where you found this one, to either the link, social media we talked about, or any other major podcast platform for the next episode. All right, thanks again, Linda. Okay. I just wanted to ask you about the cinema. What did you last watch there? Ah, so many things. So at the cinema, the real cinema, I used to have like that limitless, um, like a limitless membership card. So I would go like as many times as I want. I'd go like twice, three times a week. But then with the lockdown, Ooh, jealous. yeah, yeah. So the last film that I watched uh, in the cinema was on International Women's Day. It was um, Radioactive, uh, a film about Marie Curie. Very, very inspiring. 